Today on Let the Bible Speak. You may have heard the gospel and you may believe the gospel, but have you obeyed the gospel? The Bible uses that phrase several times and we'll explore it next on Let the Bible Speak. And good morning. Thanks for joining me today to open and learn from the Word of God. Our study today centers on a vital question, a question that you need to seriously and carefully consider and answer because your relationship to God and your eternal destiny depends upon the answer. Have you really obeyed the gospel? Now, I didn't make up that expression, nor did any other person or religious organization. It is a Bible expression. God uses that expression. The scriptures make it clear that it has very personal and eternal implications. In the 10th chapter of the Roman letter, Paul the Apostle writes this beginning in verse 13. He says, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So the gospel is to be preached. It is to be heard. It is to be believed. But Paul also says it is to be obeyed. What does the phrase, obey the gospel, mean? What is the gospel? And how does one become obedient to it? Well, that will be the focus of our question today. And as we study, I hope you'll be asking the question of yourself, have I obeyed the gospel? If not, I hope you will without delay. And I'll return with the lesson after a song. Gospel means good news and refers to the glad message of Jesus the Christ. But what more specifically does that mean? What is the gospel? Well, Paul succinctly states in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, beginning in verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you have received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. 
Now, what did he preach to them? What was this gospel? He says, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So the gospel is the good news that Christ sacrificially died, He was buried, and was raised from the dead, making it possible for us to be saved. Paul said in Acts 20 and verse 24 that he was commissioned as an apostle to testify of the gospel, or good news, of the grace of God. Quoting Isaiah, who prophesied of the Jews' restoration after the Babylonian captivity, Paul in Romans 10 verse 14 connects that promise to the present reign of Christ and the spiritual condition He has made possible for us by saying that He sent out His apostles to preach the gospel of peace. So it's called the gospel of peace. In other words, the good news that Christ's reign has brought peace to those who were once in bondage to wickedness and in enmity with God. He has effected peace between man and God. He calls it the gospel of your salvation in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. And many times the New Testament calls it the gospel of the kingdom. Now that means the good news of Christ's reign in the hearts of men and over the everlasting, unconquerable kingdom that God has given to Him. So the gospel certainly is good news. When Christ completed His personal work on earth, He dispatched His apostles to preach that gospel to all of mankind all over the world. Now the church continues today to uphold and extend that same message that the apostles first published by, well as Paul told the Philippians, holding forth the word of life. That's why we're here today. That's what this program is about and what this sermon is about. The gospel is not only good news for the world, it is good news for you. God not only wants to forgive you of your sins and for you to be reconciled to Him in a right relationship, but He also sent His Son Christ Jesus to die for your sins and raising Him up from death, He then seated Him upon His throne at His right hand and accordingly, He wants His Son to rule your heart and life and thus transform you by holiness into His spiritual likeness. That's God's plan or scheme of redemption. That's wonderful news. And that news is for you and it is for me. But did you know that the gospel is not only news to be heard and believed and to be rejoiced in, but the gospel message is also to be obeyed. That's right. The gospel has commands for the sinner who hears it to obey. Now this may sound a little surprising or strange to some because of the very common dogma that has saturated the religious community throughout the past 500 years or so, which states that since salvation is by grace through faith, which it is, that it is therefore unconditional and the sinner has no obligation to obey anything in order to receive it. But there's a bit of a contradiction just in that statement, that proposition. Strangely, most except for those who espouse universalism believe that salvation is not automatically applied to a sinner, but is conditioned on something. It must be accepted. It must be received. And most claim that one does so by simply believing the gospel. But, but think about even then, you're making salvation contingent upon belief. If a person doesn't believe... The grace of God doesn't avail him anything, and the Scriptures make belief essential. For by grace are you saved through faith, said Paul in Ephesians 2 and verse 8. He also said that through Christ we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God, Romans 5 and verse 2. 
So can we agree right off the bat that salvation by grace is conditional? It is contingent upon faith. If not, we have a contradiction with these and other passages. But now the question is, does this faith just mean a mental agreement, a mental assent? Or does it contain more? What does it mean to obey the gospel? Again, that's a Bible phrase. And have you obeyed the gospel? Are you sure? Now, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, but Paul made it clear in more than one place that the gospel message is more than a statement of facts. It is a message that is to be obeyed or submitted to. So how does one obey the gospel when he first hears it? And is obeying the gospel the same thing as, well, simply believing the gospel, as most people are using that term, believe? In Romans 10, Paul talks about the Jews to whom the gospel plan of salvation was first offered. Now, Israel was the nation that God had chosen as vessels of service to bring the Messiah and thus redemption for all of the race, all of mankind, into the world. Israel was not chosen for salvation. They were chosen for service in God's plan so that all Jew and Gentile could be saved. And that's the context of Romans chapters 9 through 11. Now, accordingly, since they were the chosen channel for the Christ to enter the world, they were then the first to have the good news of salvation offered to them. Romans 1 verse 16 says, The gospel of Christ is God's power unto salvation unto the Jew first, and then the Gentile. And though some Jews did come to accept the truth of Christ in the first century and obeyed the gospel, the nation then as a whole did not. They rejected the Christ, and then God broadened the scope of the gospel message to include all the peoples and nations of the world. Now, Paul illustrates the Jews' rejection in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. So let's begin. I actually want to begin in verse 16. Notice he concludes, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Now, beginning there in that verse, let's work our way back and see what he means by them not obeying the gospel. Notice he says, They have not obeyed the gospel because, as Isaiah prophesied of them 700 years earlier, they did not believe the report. Well, what report? Well, look back at the prior verse, verse 15. And how shall they preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. So notice they did not obey the gospel because they did not believe the gospel when it was preached to them. Now go back one more verse to verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed, and how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? So God sent preachers to them. That's talking about the apostles Christ sent to reveal the plan of God beginning with the Jews on Pentecost. He sent preachers to them to declare the glad tidings of the gospel of peace. A report that he says they did not believe when they heard it. And because they did not believe that report, they did not believe that gospel, they therefore did not obey it. Now go back one more verse to verse 13 and into verse 14. He says, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Now please, my dear friend, notice this. One must call upon the name of the Lord in order to be saved. But also notice this. Calling on the name of the Lord and believing in the Lord are not the same thing. Now one cannot call on the name of the Lord without believing in Him. 
Paul makes that clear. Believing in the Lord leads one to call on the name of the Lord to be saved, and only those who do believe can call on the name of the Lord. But believing and calling on the name of the Lord are not the same thing. So then what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? A person who believes can then call on the name of the Lord. If he believes, what must he then do to call on the Lord's name to be saved? Now, if we can answer that, we can determine what Paul meant when he said they had not obeyed the gospel. You see, if a person calls on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. But they can't call on the name of the Lord until they believe in Him. They can't believe on Him until they've heard about Him. And they can't hear about Him until someone preaches or tells them the good news or glad tidings of Him. Well, the Jewish nation had heard the glad tidings of Jesus through the apostles whom God sent to preach it to them, but they didn't believe their preaching. And since they did not believe their preaching, they did not obey the gospel that was preached to them. They did not, in other words, call on the name of the Lord, and therefore they rejected the gospel and they were not saved. So how does one call on the name of the Lord? Now, some believe that that refers to saying what many call the sinner's prayer. That it means to actually, verbally, or in your heart, cry out to Christ to save them or to come into your heart. That is, after all, the most common practice of denominational and community churches throughout the land and around the world today. You've seen it time and time again. They invite sinners to recite a simple prayer or to cry out to God to save them. But is that what calling on the name of the Lord means? Well, no. This phrase actually comes from the Old Testament. It was used by Joel to prophesy the beginning of the gospel age, which began on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. And Peter, when he preached in Acts 2, he connects Joel's prophecy with what was occurring there that day as those people first heard the gospel of the resurrected and enthroned Christ. But notice it doesn't say to call unto the Lord but rather to call upon the name of the Lord. There's a difference. It is the appeal that comes from the knowledge that only the Lord Jesus Christ has the power to save. We are availing ourselves of the mercy and the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, the power that is found within His name, for Him to do what He has offered to do. Now, do we do that by merely wafting a prayer up to heaven? Do we do that by just simply mentally assenting to some facts that we've heard called the gospel? Well, remember Jesus said in Matthew 7 verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So calling on the name of the Lord is more than verbally calling out to Christ. It involves some kind of obedience. Do you suppose we can find some example of one calling on the name of the Lord after hearing and believing the gospel? Sure we can. Read with me now from Acts chapter 22 and verse 16. Saul of Tarsus. He met Christ, you remember, on the Damascus road back in Acts 9. And here in Acts 22, he later, as the apostle Paul, is recounting that. Now, Saul of Tarsus already believes that Jesus is the resurrected Lord. He came to believe that when he saw Christ on the Damascus road. So he believes. And he wants to know after he's seen the Lord and after he believes that Jesus has been resurrected, he wants to know what he must do. Well, 
Jesus didn't tell him, silly, you, you can't do anything. He didn't say that. He sent him into the city to wait for the preacher to come tell him what he must do. So Ananias comes to him, and I want you to listen carefully to what he says. He says, Saul, what are you waiting for? Pray this prayer with me and call upon the name of the Lord. Is that what he said? No, that's not what the scripture there says, you see. And that doesn't work because Acts 9 verse 11 tells us that after Saul met Christ, but before Ananias came to him to tell him what to do, the Bible tells us that Saul was praying. He spent that time in between meeting Jesus on the Damascus Road and Ananias coming to where he was staying. He spends that time praying. But he had not yet called on the name of the Lord. That's significant. How do I know that? Because Ananias told him to call on the name of the Lord when he got there after Saul had already been praying. So if it doesn't mean prayer, what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord to be saved? Well, let's read Acts 22 verse 16 correctly now. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. You see, Saul believed the moment he saw Christ on the Damascus road, but he hadn't called on the name of the Lord. And therefore, according to Romans 10 verse 13, he had not yet been saved. He had even been praying, but he had not called on the name of the Lord, and thus he had not been saved. When did he call on the name of the Lord? Well, Ananias says when he arose and was baptized, washing away his sins. You see, that's how he called upon the name of the Lord. Now that's what the Bible plainly says. That's not what most preachers are saying, though. Friend, I'll take what the Word of God says over what 10,000 preachers say any day of the week. And you should too. We call upon the name of the Lord when we obey the gospel that we have heard and believed. There is more to it, friend, than just believing something in your mind and saying a prayer. In fact, sinners were never told in the New Testament to pray for salvation. They were told to obey the gospel. Now this agrees perfectly with what the Bible says in other passages as well. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21 says, There is also an antitype which now saves us. Now the word antitype it simply means the fulfillment of a symbol of the Old Testament. A type has an antitype. And the Old Testament has various types that represented or foreshadowed something that would be a reality under the new covenant. The Old Testament it was a symbol. The New Covenant, it is the actual substance. It's the shadow back there. It's the real thing casting the shadow in the New Testament. Now, the type that he's talking about is the flood, the waters that uh, removed Noah and his family from that wicked and condemned world and, uh, and uh, that antediluvian world into that new and that cleansed state. And he says there is an antitype there is something that that represented in this dispensation. He says, which now saves us. What is that? Notice he says, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh. It's not about something we're doing physically that accomplishes something physically, but rather that physical action, that physical act of submitting to Christ and obedience to Christ does something inwardly. What is it? He says it's not the removal of the filth of the flesh like the ceremonial washings under the Old Testament, but he says, but it's the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Now, Greek scholars point out that the word answer there is actually an interrogative term. In other words, it means an appeal for something. What Peter is saying is that in baptism, we appeal for that cleansed conscience. Or we might say, we call upon the name of the Lord for forgiveness and salvation when we, in faith, obey Christ's command to be baptized. Now then, with that in mind, turn to Romans chapter 6. Notice with me in Romans 6, beginning in verse 17. Paul writes, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of... There's that term obeyed again. Yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. They were slaves to sin, you see, but they were set free. Well, when? What was the point where Paul says their condition changed? He says, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. They were servants of sin, but they obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. They were then free from sin. Now, the word form means a mold or a likeness. Notice, they obeyed something that was like the doctrine or the teaching they had first heard. Well, what's the gospel that Paul said he first delivered? The first teaching he gave about salvation. Back, we read it earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. Paul says the gospel whereby we are saved, wherein we stand, is that Christ died, he was buried, and that he rose again. So Paul tells the Romans that they obeyed a likeness of the gospel and were then freed from sin. Well, what does the Bible tell a sinner to do that pictures the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? It never tells him to get down at an altar and say a, say a prayer in the likeness of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Bible never tells a sinner to do that anyway, much less in the likeness of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. What does the Bible command a person to do that the Bible also says is like the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? Well, look there in Romans 6 back at verses 3 and 4. He says, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. When do we start walking in newness of life? After we come forth from that watery grave of baptism. Do you see the connection? In Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, the Bible says, Then the word of the Lord spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Romans 1 and verse 5, Through Him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for His name. My friend, don't listen to those who tell you that baptism has nothing to do with a person being saved. They're teaching false doctrine. They're contradicting what the Bible says, regardless of how popular it may be or good it may sound. Have you obeyed the gospel? That's a question of great consequence. That's a question of eternal consequence. Peter said in 1 Peter 4 verse 17, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? What will be the end of such people? 
Well, Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 and 9, And to give you her troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Don't be among that number, my friend. Believe the gospel, but also obey the gospel by being immersed in water into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And when you do, you'll be calling on the name of the Lord, and by His grace He'll save you, and you can continue your obedience to the gospel by believing for Him each day. with us on social media go to facebook.com and search for let the bible speak tv eternity is too long and our souls too precious to simply dismiss the question have i obeyed the gospel i hope that you'll give that question very serious consideration in the hours and the days ahead in light of what the new testament teaches and uh, if you'd like to have a copy of today's lesson we'll be glad to send it to you without delay Get in touch with us and ask for the lesson, Have You Obeyed the Gospel? And uh, we'll send a free printed transcript to you. Remember, you can find our videos and transcripts online, ltbstv.org. Be sure to follow us and subscribe to our various social media platforms, especially our YouTube channel. We're growing every day in in our number of subscribers, and we hope you'll subscribe and share our content and thus help us to spread the truth of the gospel. Thank you for joining me today. I'll look forward, if God wills, to meeting you back here for another Bible study next time. Until then, may the Lord bless you. Have a great week. Let the Bible Speak is brought to you by The Church of Christ. For more information, including our past broadcast and sermon transcripts, visit ltbstv.org.
Thanks for being with us today. Join us next time for Let the Bible Speak.